Good morning. My name is Peter, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to introduce our storyteller for today, uh, Amy Krell. And uh, I really had fun thinking about what to say about her. Here's where I landed, Amy. She's been curious what I was going to say. Amy is incredibly practical and just knows how to get stuff done. That's one of the first things that I have come to appreciate about her. But here's really what's underneath that, I think. She has so much love to give. And so I encourage you to get to know her and connect with her and get in on that love she's got for everyone. Amy, come on up and tell us your story. I was really scared of that, so that went well. <laughs> Good morning. Um, as most of you know, I have a two-year-old son named Theo. He's over there, he's yelling for me, so he might end up up here. Um, I've settled into motherhood and feel pretty confident about my mothering skills and parenting skills, but the beginning of my mothering journey, it did not come easy. I had a great pregnancy, no nausea, easy birth, I mean, textbook. But as every dink, double income, no kids, experiences, bringing Theo home was a pretty jarring experience. He was an okay baby as far as standards go. Nursing came easy, doctor's appointments went okay, but connecting with Theo was really hard, and I did not connect with him the way that my other friends connected with their babies. Now when I was pregnant, so were eight of my friends. They say that pregnancy hits friend groups in waves, and I'm here to attest that that is true. When those friends would come over with their newborns, they looked thrilled, enthralled at the amazing things their newborns were doing. They just loved to love their babies. I didn't. <laughs> Brian took one week off from work when we brought Theo home because he got no paternity leave. And the day he went back to work, I remember begging him through tears rolling down my face not to leave me with my brand new baby. Begging my husband not to leave me. As the visitors came and went those first couple weeks, I was able to put on a smiling face and tell everyone that things were wonderful. But on the inside, it was not wonderful. I didn't want to spend time with Theo. I didn't want to hold Theo. I didn't even really want to touch Theo. I knew baby blues was a real thing and assumed that all of these feelings would pass. My hormones were out of whack. My family was out of whack. Heck, my whole life was out of whack. We planned a trip with the Shide clan to San Diego to attend a girl that I grew up babysitting's to attend the wedding of a girl I grew up babysitting. Theo was four weeks old when I packed him up for his first plane ride. Brian and I were not confident in our parenting skills at that point and didn't know why we were taking a newborn on a plane. We were traveling with the most well-traveled family I know. They knew how to airport and plane with kids. We were in pretty good hands. The plane flight went swimmingly and the trip was off to a great start. We went to SeaWorld, the kids were great. Um, and then the wedding day came and went, and so did colic and postpartum depression. Theo screamed for three hours at the reception. I'm talking screamed. He did not cry. I walked him around the military base where the wedding was in San Diego, crying with my screaming baby attached to my chest and a baby Bjorn. I remember stepping up, and stepping up onto the pier at the military base and thinking, I could throw him into the water and be done with him. <laughs> Of course, I recognized that this wasn't a normal thought. Brian was close by, and that was the moment when I knew why women shake their babies. We finally got Theo to sleep and took him back to the hotel for the night. After we returned home from the trip, 
things got worse. His colic got worse. My postpartum depression, which was still undiagnosed, got out of hand. The only way Theo would go to sleep was by bouncing. I think Brian and I probably spent 60% of our day, and I'm talking a 24-hour day, aggressively bouncing our child on a yoga ball or on a guest bed or like this. Seriously, our legs were out of control. Um, we bounced him so aggressively that my mother-in-law almost broke her foot bouncing him when she was babysitting one night. Um, I'm pretty sure I was in the best shape of my life, and I still thought I could handle it all on my own, and it would just pass. I started isolating myself. I wouldn't invite friends over. I wouldn't take Theo out in public because I couldn't control his screaming. I felt like a failure. My friendships suffered, and my confidence in my mothering skills dwindled. I completely lost who I was. The words, I hate my baby, came out of my mouth more times than I'm comfortable admitting to. Theo stole my identity. I wasn't Amy anymore. I was Theo's mom, and I really, really missed being Amy. No one except my husband, my in-laws, my parents knew how much I was suffering. I kept my feelings so close so that no one would be able to see. I hit an all-time low when one of my best friends came over with her new daughter. And I still remember the exact words she said to me. They were, Amy, I think something's wrong with you. They were caring and heartfelt, and they hit me like a ton of bricks. After some other convincing from Brian and some tear-filled phone calls from my mom, I made an appointment with my doctor. I went in and told her what was going on, and without even finishing my story, she stopped me and said, um, Amy, why did you wait so long? It had been four months since Theo was born, and I really didn't have an answer for her. She prescribed me an antidepressant, which was a pretty hard pill for me to swallow figuratively. I had never been the type of person that would need happy drugs. There's a stigma around needing those. It took me two weeks to actually start taking the medication after I picked it up. After about four days of taking the medicine as prescribed, I literally felt like the world had been lifted off my shoulders. For the first time since Theo's birth, I looked at him with adoring eyes. When he was screaming, I felt bad for him because something wasn't right. I held him close, comforted him, and knew I was giving him everything that I possibly could and that his colic would eventually pass. It did. And now I'm here on the other side of postpartum depression with a really sassy two-year-old. It was the darkest months of my life. I felt like I would never recover and my friendships would never come back. But I'm happy to say that my friendships are stronger than ever. And I'm a huge advocate for educating people on postpartum depression. It's a very scary place to be, and the stigma surrounding it is unreal. It is common and easily treatable. I do worry that it will happen to me again, but now I know how to handle it and the resources that are there. That's the end of my story. Thanks for listening. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of John. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading verses 15 through 19 from John chapter 21 in the New American Standard Bible. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. 
He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this, he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Uh, once again, my name is Peter and I'm one of the pastors here. And today we're going to finish out our series in the book of John. And we've been calling it the Son of God. And the reason we've been calling it that is from this verse, John chapter 20, verse 31. And just as a, a way to bring closure, I want us to read this together. So let's read this out loud together. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So there it is. The whole point of the book of John is so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one sent from God. And uh, John's assertion is that if we believe in him, we're going to have a kind of life, what he calls in the book, life to the full. And so I want to challenge that a little bit. I want to just ask the question, uh, if you are here today and you claim to believe in Jesus, what does that mean? How are you different? How does your life personally look different? Why believe? And if you uh, are here and you don't believe in Jesus yet, or you've been watching people who claim to believe in Jesus, what's the difference that you see in so-called Christians? Is there any benefit to believing that you feel like Christians improve sort of the uh, batting average for human beings? You know, there's some visible, tangible reason to believe. And uh, it's often not what we think. You know, the gospel is um, kind of shocking in that way. It's, it's kind of a paradox. And this so-called life to the full, here in this final closing chapter of the book, Jesus sort of breaks it down for us. And he says, actually, life to the full that you get to have if you believe in me looks like death. And so the difference maker in those who believe in God is that they know how to die well. And he says, if you learn from me how to die well, then you will begin to live life to the full, the life that I intended for you, the image of God in which you are created by me. I'm the word of God. You are going to be activated that person is going to emerge in a way that you can't if you're trying to live. And so he says, let me show you how to die. Of course, the way he puts it is, someone else is going to take you by the hand, and they're going to dress you. And somebody else is going to lead you to where you do not want to go. And that is the kind of death that's going to bring glory to God. And I'm going to show you how to do that because it's for that purpose you exist. That's what it means to believe in my name. So it's, it's not 
what we may initially want, but it is what we were created for. We got a little glimpse of this, you know, when Jesus came into, uh, you know, into Jerusalem to uh, die on the cross. Remember that? All these people were celebrating him, his disciples included. They thought he was going to sort of give them life the way they imagined life to be. But instead, the whole movement seemingly fell apart. He died. He got executed on a criminal's uh, instrument of torture. They were all scattered. Everything was lost. And it's after that that these disciples are disillusioned and disappointed. And they're on the beach because they've gone back to their old job. And they're demoralized. And it's there Jesus shows up, resurrected. He makes them breakfast, waits for them on the beach. And he has this exchange with his disciples, uh, more specifically Peter, the one who had touted earlier, uh, pre-arrest, he said, even if all these other disciples abandon you, I will never leave you. In fact, I will die for you. And then he abandoned Jesus, denied him three times, and uh, Jesus is confronting uh, Peter here, uh, really about what did you think following me was going to be like? What did you think? If you love me, what would your life look like? I want to show you what believing in me really, really means. And so that's sort of the setup for today's talk. And the two points that we're going to uh, look at today are overcoming death and overcoming self. I have personally come to the conclusion uh, that the fear underneath all the fears in my life is a fear of death. Now, I don't think about death every day. It's not like at every moment I'm like, oh, there goes Peter fearing death again. It doesn't look like that. It doesn't feel like that. But it kind of looks something like this. You can use any example, and I think you have your own version of this. But uh, one of my fears is a fear of abandonment. And so about twice a year, I think, I go through all the pictures that uh, we've taken over the, you know, up to that period. I filter them out. I do a little edit here and there. And then I upload them in batch to Facebook, like 100 pictures or something every six months. And then what do I do? I wait. What am I waiting for? Comments. Comments. That's the gold standard of approval by your Facebook community, isn't it? Like people like easily the thumbs up, like, and now they have these other reactions like hearts and stuff. But what I really want are the comments. Now, when I'm uploading my pictures or I'm waiting for comments to show up in my feed, I'm not thinking, oh, this is driven by a fear of death. That's not a conscious thought that I have. But if I chase that thought down and I ask the so what question, it's like, okay, why did you upload the pictures? Well, because I want to share my life. Why? Because uh, then people will feel connected to me. So what? And then I guess they'll like feel like there's still good things happening in my life and they're going to like me. It's like, so what? Well, then... Um, Kind of somehow in the universe and the, with the force, kind of like I still exist and I'm still positive in their mind and maybe they'll remember me, they'll think about me. So what? Then, then they're not abandoning me. If they don't abandon you, so what? Well, then I don't know. I, just, I feel like I'm going to die if they abandon me. So I have to sort of 
keep asking the question, poking the bear, before I get to the place where I realize what's driving me uploading pictures to Facebook is a fear of death. That's a dramatic way to put it, but I think it's true, and you have your own versions of that. So what about driving? When you're driving, you kind of go, who is that person? You know, I've seen you drive. Like, I've been in your cars, and sometimes I feel like I don't know you at all. <laughs> you're friendly, you're warm, you're caring, you're civil. And then you get behind the wheel, and suddenly you have no patience whatsoever. Everybody else is an idiot. Nothing makes sense to you about the roads and the interactions with, between cars. And I just think, whoa, I don't want to get on this person's bad side. And then we can do that exercise where we start asking 20 questions about why your reactions are that way. And ultimately, we'll get to the place where you fear death. And I want to submit to you today that underneath all of our issues, 100% of our issues, is what the Bible calls a fear of death. As long as you fear death, you're in survival mode on some level. Or the survival mode is right there. And as long as you're in survival mode, you have to be self-centered. And so we have this fear of death. That translates to self-centeredness. Because you have to survive. Ultimately, you're always looking out for yourself. Because you don't want to die. And so the Bible says, you need salvation from that. Because fear of death is a really big deal. And if you don't get that squared away, that's going to be haunting you. That's going to be pervading every area of your life. Even if you don't see it clearly or linearly, it's still there. Take care of the big thing and every, all the little things begin to resolve themselves. And so today, overcoming death, overcoming self. Overcoming death, Let's start with verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you. That's the beginning of death. And bring you where you do not wish to go. That's dying to self. Now this, he says, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. You notice the someone who's going to gird him and take him by the hand to where he doesn't want to go is actually himself, Jesus, because he says, follow me. So Jesus, if you believe in him, is going to show you how to die by dressing you, by taking you where you don't want to go. But as you go, you're going to see that that brings glory to God. And you're going to realize that's why you exist. And that, my friends, is salvation. Um, horror movies are so predictable, you know, because the only weapon any villain ever has is just death. That's all. It's so shallow. The formula is so easy. Make somebody scared for their life. That's it. That's the whole story. And movies are like that. Songs are like that. It's just about death. And what's the alternative? It's love. And so every plot is so shallow because at the base of all fears, ultimately, is just the fear of death. 
And our brains are wired to work this way. This past year, I learned so much. I so appreciate this uh, simple insight into how the brain works. If you look in your sermon notes, there's an article, a research paper that you can click on and read. If you don't want to read the whole article, you can just read the abstract. But it basically teaches about, it's a research about the difference between your front brain and your back brain. And what the research says is that the locus of the self, you know, the person that you sort of associate as you, that lives in the front part of your brain. That's where you do your critical thinking, where you make decisions, where you have your imagination and creativity, and that's where you have words, you know, ideas. It comes from your front brain, and so you associate that with yourself. But the research shows that a more base version of you, what's sometimes called the reptilian brain, is back here. It's your uh, brainstem. That's where you have your emotions, like ecstasy or fear. You know, that's where your fight or flight mechanism lives. And in the research, this is the part I love. It shows that the front part of your brain and the back part of your brain cannot cooperate. Because if your front part of the brain is engaged, then your back brain shuts off. But once the back brain gets triggered, your front brain shuts down. They can't operate at the same time. And so, you know, sometimes you get triggered or you get flooded with emotions. Maybe you have conflict with somebody or something's happening that's triggering you. And then after the fact, you kind of step back from that moment and you say, what happened? Who was that? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Who were you? Why did you do that? Why did you say that? The reason you feel kind of a distance from what happened is because that was happening from your back brain. And you don't associate the self from the back brain. And your front brain has shut down. So you say, who was that masked man? Why did I do that? I don't know. You know, sometimes I'll let my instincts take over and I do something that's not thoughtful of Susie. And she might say, weren't you thinking about me? Did you think I would like that? And I was like, honey, I wasn't thinking. That wasn't me. It was, it was a demon. It was something. But it was not me. And there's... It's not just an excuse. There's some truth to that. Because when we get triggered, we're, we're operating instinctively. We're reacting rather than responding. It ex explains a lot about why I can't think when I'm triggered. I literally can't think. And this is the difference between the pros and the rookies. The pros have trained themselves to not get triggered as easily. So under intense duress, they're able to remain calm. They're able to be self-possessed. They're able to think critically. They have situational awareness. They have a kind of perspective on what's happening. They're able to not live out of their back brain, but stay in their front brain. And that's very powerful. That's why we pay them the big bucks. That's what makes the pros the pros. So that's just a small sort of example of how if we overcome death, we are sort of a better version, more evolved, more conscious, improved, aware version of ourselves. Let me, let's look at some verses together uh, in the way the Bible addresses this idea of death and how imminent it is for us. 
1 Corinthians 15 says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and will be changed. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I read a verse like this, and I used to think, I don't think about death. I'm not obsessed with death. How is uh, death a motive? How is that an incentive for me? It doesn't work. But then I start thinking deeper, and I realize, no, actually the fear of death drives me. It causes me to remain enslaved. Uh, John chapter 11, verse 25 to 26, Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asks her this question as if death is on the top of her mind. You know, and I would read something like this and not really understand it. Hebrews lays it out even clearer. Chapter 2, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Is this true? Do you feel like you are a slave to the fear of death? So I have two examples for you. And for me, this, I'm utterly convinced that I am driven by a fear of death. And I know that death is a final enemy. And if with Christ I can conquer death, I can be a kind of person that I've never been before when I was a slave to death. Two stories. The first example is a few weeks ago, I went on a snow hike where there was about thigh deep snow. And I didn't expect this. And it was, uh, the trail had been completely lost in the snow. And I was on a really uh, dangerous part of the hike. And uh, at some point, I'm not sure what happened, but I slipped. And I started sliding down one of the sides of the slope. And I tried to stop myself, but my snowshoes just couldn't catch right. Like something had flipped. And then my poles, I couldn't get the right angle, and I didn't have an axe with me. And if I had an axe, I would have used it to sort of bring it under my body weight and point it down and catch myself with the weight of my body in the snow and stop the fall. But I couldn't do that. And every time I stuck my pole in, the pole would just sort of, you know, uh, do nothing. And I kept sliding. It was a slow slide. And it was, Susie was standing up there laughing at me. Uh, <laughs> But I slid about 20, 25 feet. And I had enough time to have my life, life flash before me several times. And I had, this, I had this wonderful opening up, like the universe, the key to the universe sort of opened up. And I saw truth. You have, 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 ever have these moments? Here's what I saw. I started thinking about my insurance policy. And I thought... Am I disqualified from my family receiving the money after I die because I did this to myself? I was like, I never checked on that. I wonder if Susie's going to remarry. How are my kids are going to be okay? This is so pathetic. I'm going to make the news. I'm going to be one of those guys everybody kind of feels sorry for, but not really because it's completely self-inflicted. He chose to go on this hike. What an idiot. 
You know, and that's what I thought was going, and I'm having these thoughts as I'm trying to save my own life. And I had this insight that all the sort of the noise and all the effort and all this work that I do, it's really just a way to pad myself, to cushion the fall towards death. You know, you could talk about Facebook, you can talk about insurance policies, but my social relationships and all the anxiety in relationships, all the worry about money, all the ways that I try to sort of cushion my life, all of that underneath all of it is a fear of death. And I remember that was my insight as I was falling very slowly to my death. That, gosh, I'm really driven by this fear of death. And all this work that I'm doing, I am a slave. I am a slave to the fear of death. So much of my day is just managing that fear. Ask your question. You know, ask the question of yourself. Why? So what? Then what? And you keep chasing your thoughts down, and you'll see underneath all of it is a fear of death. Another example, this is more common, um, and, but this too is another example of the fear of death that rules my life. And this has been a lifelong struggle, and I've shared this, I think, once before. I share it again, and every time I share it, I'm so embarrassed because it doesn't make me look good. It's not going to make you like me better. And again, I have fear of death, and if I tell this story, then you'll like me less, and if you like me less, then you'll be more apt to abandon me, and if you abandon me, I die. <laughs> so I don't want to tell this story, but I'm going to tell you so that you might find an access point for yourself in this truth. But... Uh, an issue of mine that I've inherited from my family of origin that I brought into my family, and Susie has been such medicine for me in this area because she can't do this if she even tried, is I have this condemning voice, this tone that comes up on the regular. And Susie will tell you I've gotten better over the years, but it's still there. Whenever something goes wrong, or even when things don't go wrong but it's not perfect, I have to find out whose fault it was. And I do it in this most demeaning, condescending way that makes everybody around me shrink and just feel dumb. Nothing is gained by it. There's not one person that feels better, including me. I feel awful afterwards. But at those moments, I'm triggered. My you know, amygdala, my back brain kicks in, and I don't know what's happening. It doesn't feel like me. I don't relate to that person, but there I am on a witch hunt trying to figure out who did what? I hate this about myself. And probably many of you have seen flashes of that sort of fearful, angry look or tone in my voice. You've, you've experienced it. Maybe you have it too. What is that? Why am I that way? Underneath that is a fear of death. I wonder, I wonder, who can I be? If I didn't fear death, what if I can overcome death? What if there was a savior or a salvation that frees me from the fear of death so that I don't have to worry about dying, so that my anxieties can finally be quelled and gone? What if I can be freed up from having to focus on myself and be always prioritizing myself because I myself am taken care of. 
Who would I be if I can be freed from myself? I would be a better dad. I would be a better husband. I would be a better pastor, better leader, better friend, better citizen of this country, better citizen of this earth. The whole world will be improved if I can just overcome my fear of death. And the Bible says you may not be thinking about this all the time. You may not make the connections all the time, but it's there and you're a slave to it. Overcoming the self. Uh, Verse 17, Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And this is where Jesus is getting to. Peter had promised that he would die for Jesus, but when the moment came, you know, he abandoned Jesus, right? He saved his own skin. He chose himself over Jesus. And uh, Jesus says, you know, actually, if you die, though, Peter, you can really begin to love other people. You'll be freed up to love other people. He's answering the question, you know, is it possible to discover something more worthwhile, interesting, motivating, and intrinsic to you than a focus and a prioritization of yourself? And the answer is yes, it's possible, and it's not you. You don't want to live for you. That's a boring, dull way to live. You're riddled with anxiety, driven by fear. Why would you want to live that way? But you're made in God's image, and if you are freed up from the fear of death, you naturally overcome yourself. You have a kind of distance from yourself, you are less self-oriented, less self-conscious, and you're going to live into, and this true you is going to emerge. Verse 19, now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. You can be somebody that glorifies God. If you are able to overcome death, you can tend his sheep. Uh, Here's some really fun science that sort of brings all of this together. Uh, There's a, I was listening to this radio program called Radio Lab, and they did a story on heroism, people who are heroes. And uh, the lead story uh, in this segment was based around the Carnegie Hero Fund. You know Carnegie, the famous Carnegie? Uh, They have a hero fund, and uh, they searched the United States for heroic acts done by normal people, right? And they uh, award these everyday heroes uh, recognition at $5,000 in cash. And so they are scouring the the country for everyday heroes, and they landed on this as one of their best stories. And this took place in New York City. There was a young man, a young white man in his 20s who started having a seizure while he was waiting for the train in New York City. And he fell over when the train was about 1,000 feet away. Right onto the tracks he fell. And he was uh, seizing on the train, on the train tracks. And everybody's in shock. Everybody's paralyzed. And they're all looking around, but nobody's doing anything. Finally, uh, an older African-American man who had two daughters with him, he sort of sprang into action. He jumped down into the tracks, and he tried to lift the young man uh, out, but he couldn't. The young man was about 200 pounds uh, heavy, we learned later on. And and he was not cooperating because he was seizing. Uh, And so he tried, he tried, but he couldn't lift the man. And the train was finally about 50 feet away. 
And the train began to see the people, but they couldn't stop. There's too much momentum for that. So this uh, African-American man, he does this, and I don't know that I could do this. I'm not sure anybody in this room would do this, but he jumps on top of the young man who's seizing to try to flatten his body so that they can both go under the train as it passes. So scary. And his daughters are on the platform screaming for their dad to come back up. But somehow this man does this, and he's able to flatten both of them enough so that both of them live and are unscathed, except the uh, African-American man who's on top, he got a little surface scratch on his right calf muscle. Do you think you could do that? And the, and the question they asked is, what allowed him to die to himself, overcome the fear of death, and prioritize the other person's life or feed, tend my sheep? What allowed him to do that? That's the question. And if you hear this program on Radio Lab, you'll learn that he's a Christian. He talks about God and how the Holy Spirit told him to do it and actually have been preparing him for years for this moment is his belief that he'd been waiting for this moment for years. And then when it came, he knew it, God told him, and he just acted. That's the full story. Tell. Uh, but here's a scientific explanation. Um, this neuroscientist at Stanford University wrote a wonderful book that I read about a year and a half ago called Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. And he sort of, uh, Robert uh, Sapolsky is his name, and he tries to explain scientifically how human beings have such a large range of behavioral possibilities. You know, how on the one hand can we have a guy like that with daughters watching risk his life and save a stranger's life? And we have the same kinds of people committing atrocities throughout history. How is that range of behavior possible? And uh, Robert is trying to explain this neurologically. And he uh, basically summarizes his whole book this way. He says this, heroism is only possible when we have what's called, what he calls, distant empathy. He says, if you are too empathetic, that is, you identify too strongly with the person who needs your help, you actually are incapable of helping them because you get triggered. It becomes about you. You are self-focused even though you're responding to the other person's pain. And you know that you've experienced this, that when you are going through crisis sometimes, the least helpful people are those who are most emotionally connected to you. They themselves get so caught up and it becomes about them. So then either they're not helpful because they don't know how to see you. They just see their own pain and trigger in it. Or it's so painful for them, they just abandon you. They can't take the pain, so they're distant. You wonder, I wonder why my best friend has stopped calling me in the worst hour of my life. Well, that's why. They care too much. On the other hand, he says, people who are indifferent or not empathetic can't help either because why would they? They feel no connection to what's happening to you, and they are going to look out for themselves. So in either case, if you're too empathetic, you make it about you, and you can't be helpful. Or you're indifferent, you make it about you, and you won't be helpful. He says, the best way to be is what he calls 
distant empathy, or what we know more commonly as self-differentiation, when you are differentiated enough from the other person and yet you care, you're able to see what's actually happening, arrive better at what's actually helpful, and start engaging in action. That's helpful. So the best nurses, for example, are nurses who care, but not too personally about you. They really care to do their job well and play that role in your life at that moment. That's who you want. Those are the people who are everyday heroes. That is to say, when the self is at rest, it's calm and taken care of and not on the line, then and only then are you able to overcome yourself to actually tend my sheep. Your very best self is when you are able to overcome death so that you can overcome self. How do you do that? How do you overcome death? Show me a religious philosophy that addresses death head on the way Jesus does. Show me a philosophy Show me a school of thought. Show me a system, a way of being, a body of knowledge, a truth, an act in history that's helpful in this manner. And for me, I have landed on the fact that it's only Christ who is able to confront, defeat, overcome death for us. Finally. And it's only by believing in Jesus as the Son of God, Messiah, the Savior, that we are finally able to calm down, take ourself out of the equation, and engage the world as we were created to engage. Overcome death, overcome self. Uh, I want to end with Philippians chapter 1 here. This is Paul after having lived a long life, after studying, after thinking, after engaging he comes to this conclusion. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't know where you're at in life, but I remember uh, about 21 years ago, my wife and I were in our first premarital, I mean, uh, postmarital counseling uh, relationship with Sam Schutz. And I've mentioned him before. I think his uh, license number in the state of Massachusetts was number eight because he was so old. <laughs> and uh, he said, Peter, you know, right now, a lot of your problems have to do with you trying to live. You want, you're hungry. It's a season of gathering for you. It's what we call libido, but it's not just sexual energy. It's just life energy. He said, at some point, you're going to age, and you're going to get to a place where you're not going to just be driven by life energy, but you're going to be driven by death energy what he called thanatos. That's the Greek word for death. And so it's at that moment you really begin to emerge as your true and best self. When you begin to stop striving to live, but you care to die well, not just to live well. And he says that, that season in your life, your strengths are going to become your weaknesses. Your weaknesses are going to become your strengths. Going to see the world and others very differently. You're going to deprioritize yourself. You're going to know how to love and how to serve and how to give in ways you possibly can't now because you're too young. You need to grow old. You need time and process to go from libido to thanatos. 
I don't know where you're at, but I'm 44, and I really do begin to see this shift happening. Now, after the first service, uh, older people told me, oh, you're so young. What are you talking about? So I have to say something. I can't just keep discounting myself because I'm only 44 or something. But they, they affirmed it. They said, you know, I look forward to death. I want to know how to die well. I think about that very positively now. And I realize now living is really a process of dying. They said, you know, the Bible is true. What you said today is true. We are meant not just to live but to die so that we might live. It's my prayer for all of us that through the process of growing old, through learning how to be taken by the hand and led to places we would not have chosen as we learn to glorify God rather than ourselves, as we learn to tend his sheep and not just ourselves, we're becoming more like Christ, living the life he meant for us so that we might live as we die. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we thank you for this pathway that you have laid before us, that we might die to live. And if we live, we live for you. And if we die, we die for you. Help us to get there. We want to get there. We don't want to be living with all this fear and anxiety driving us. We want to live in the flow of your Holy Spirit, trusting you, obeying you, walking. Help us to do that in Jesus' name, amen.